Don't it make you wanna go home now? Don't it make you wanna go home? All God's children get weary when they're wrong. Don't it make you wanna go home? Don't it make you wanna go home? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. This month is special, however, as one week is simply not enough for the 1986 masterpiece, Stephen King's It. Last week I analyzed part one and the first interlude. This week I'll continue examining the novel, providing running commentary and analysis on the chapters beginning with part two, June 1958. <clears throat> Next week, tune in as I will examine the themes that are present in the novel along with a a my final word on the characters and the Stephen Kingisms and the following week for week number four I will tackle the 1990 ABC TV miniseries but today we are continuing our running commentary so part two June 1958 chapter four Ben Hanscom takes a fall now just under 160 pages into the text we are ready to truly dive in the first 160 pages, which comprised of chapters 1 through 3 and the first interlude, made for an extended prologue, introducing the readers to the cast of characters with whom we will follow throughout the remainder of the book. With section 2 informing us that it will take place in the summer of 58, which has been teased so deliciously by King, we know that we're ready to experience the horrors the adult characters ran away from their entire lives, and the reader can't help but feel a mix of excitement and dread turning each page to find out what occurred that fateful summer. Before we get to the horrors, King establishes a recognizable world we can all relate to, the last day of school. If this is King's ultimate story on childhood, then it's important that he truly captures this scene, and he does. More so, the choice to start that year with Ben is the only choice, really. I can't imagine the scene working with any other character. His absolute love of Bev is beyond well-written, and the goo-goo eyes he gives her is knowingly comedic, on some level at least. But it's truthful, it's authentic, and it's recognizable. Furthermore, the reader is supposed to fall in love with Bev. What better way to do so than hitch a ride on that kind of crush that feels like it can kill you? Remember that this isn't just any last day of school it's the last day of school when they when they return they return they return to turn to school fall they won't be children anymore not really when we begin to see the change within ben when he makes the decision to refuse to let henry bowers copy off him a move that king describes as sophisticated almost adult ben of course doesn't know that this is the summer of change the change will continue with the horrific attack by the hands of henry bowers whose bullying is elevated to a whole new level and with the assault Ben begins to be pushed out of the shallow end of the pool into the deeper waters of adulthood. So in order for that to really take hold um, and, and really just be cemented as an awful moment in the book, the, the reason why it is as awful as it is is because of the beautiful description of the last day of school. King writes, September was a million years from today. The calendar might say something different. But what the calendar said was a lie. Summer would be much longer than the sum of its days, and it belonged to him. He felt as tall as the standpipe and as wide as the whole town. Now that's the best moment of childhood personified. It's better than birthdays, better than Christmas. And for that moment to be completely taken away from Ben at the hands and knife of Henry foreshadows the darkness that will soon come. Without that description, the attack wouldn't come across as a robbery as well, a robbery of his innocence and blissful summer free of care. Not that's completely free, mind you. In this section, on page 171, we get Stephen King's love letter to libraries. It's important to note that because it isn't just a wonderful description. With danger in the form of Henry and his crew lurking outside, the library is a safe haven for Ben. We need to feel that as well, because throughout the years we'll be spending a significant amount of time within its walls. King has to be able to make us feel the power of the library, because in this book it functions as a home base for our adult losers, the adult version of the Barons. Within this section, King acknowledges the craft of haiku writing, a form of poetry imbued with secret power. The fact that the observation comes from the child's perspective only goes to support the ultimate statement that he's making about the magic of childhood. 
The section includes the introduction to the Barons, with a two-page description between 184 to 186. Like the library, the time spent on the description only supports the importance of these locations in the otherwise rotten city. Probably the most famous scene from this section is the assault on Ben at the hands of Henry. In previous rereads, the scene always popped out to me, but this time I couldn't help but focus on Ben's triumphant takedown of Henry and his escape to sending Henry flying and ultimately kicking him between the legs. It shows the bravery of Ben, willing to fight when he needs to, despite the odds being stacked against him. Here, King demonstrates the strength that he'll need to combat the apathy and evil of the town embodied by the clown. And the scene itself, the assault, is brutal. Like I said, in when I think of the novel and I think of the attack, that's what I think of. I think of the H being carved on its belly. I remember the first time I read it, just how much that stood out. But now reading it, it's all about Ben standing up to that. Throughout this section, King teased that something had happened to Ben in January. And while hiding from the bullies, we get that flashback, which will be the first connective tissue between our losers, that each of them has experienced it and lived to tell about it. This, of course, raises the question of why. Were these children predestined to combat the creature? Does it on some level know this? Do they demonstrate some bravery throughout their childhood that's rewarded by the turtle? What happened to Ben that January is a vivid description of encountering a clown on a frozen late afternoon. It's so well written, so terrifying. And despite the fact that we know that Ben is going to make it out alive, the menace is so real I start to question if he actually lives at all. In fact, the scene of Pennywise standing on the ice with the balloons drifting against the wind and the stars beginning to come out overhead is such a well-realized scene that I feel like I'm in danger. And with this scene, King begins his tour of the classic universal monsters that inspired and terrified him as a child, as the clown transforms into a mix between the clown and the mummy. With the flashback over, he has survived his encounter and graduates to a new level of hero. Now promoted, he meets his brotherhood which marks the beginning of the Losers Club. Chapter 5. Stuttering Bill Beats the Devil No story on Childhood Week would be complete without the bike, and our vehicle for magic here is Bill's bike, Silver. I'll discuss Silver in more depth in an examination on the magic of childhood uh, next week. But in the meantime, it has to be noted that Silver is Bill's receptacle for the magic. Much in the same way, Joe Hill used the bike as the literal vehicle for magic in his novel Nosferatu, which I reviewed here at the Stephen King cast in a bonus Christmas episode, so check it out if you've read Nosferatu. The most notable thing that occurs is the connective tissue, which I had referenced earlier. We are privy to a creepy scene in which Bill discovers Georgie's haunted uh, photo album. Chapter 6, One of the Missing, A Tale from the Summer of 58. Depending on where your preference stands, this chapter is either an example of why this novel works so well, or why it's too long. With this chapter, we're presented with seven pages of newspaper clippings about the reporting of Eddie Corcoran and the nine pages showing us exactly what had occurred with Eddie. As for the argument of whether this chapter is necessary in creating a rich tapestry or whether it's too long, the answer is both. Personally, I believe the newspaper clippings add a little extra spice to the novel, break up the structure that we've grown accustomed to. The newspaper clippings tell all the story that we need. What follows, then, is rather unnecessary. Remember, we've already seen two characters die at the hands of the creature at this point. Yet another description of a child's murder immediately following the news around the murder is unnecessary, as the clippings already did the job. It's as if King, continuing his Universal Monster World Tour, really wanted to include a scene where the creature from the Black Lagoon killed somebody. We're then introduced to a young Mike and his encounter with It who takes the form of Toho Studios' irradiated pteranodon, sometimes friend, sometimes foe of Godzilla, Rodan. Except it's not totally Rodan the way that the universal monsters are closely resemble the, uh, you know, the, the, the classic monsters. Um, you know, this version of Rodan is, is a little bit different. Like Ben and Bill before him, Mike now has unknowingly entered an elite club of children who have encountered the beast and survived. Chapter 7 the Dam in the Barrens. This is an Eddie-centric episode, who despite not having yet appeared in his own flashback, feels very familiar to the reader because of his appearance in Bill's chapter. Eddie and Bill and Ben create the dam and are soon joined by Richie and Stan, who's making his first appearance since his suicide, and knowing his fate makes any scene with him hard to watch. 
Eddie takes a backseat to his own chapter, which is in service to the character. As expected with the introduction of Richie, we get a lot of information regarding the court jester, from his grades to his voices. With the construction of the dam, the characters literally stop the flow of dairy, foreshadowing their later damning of the evil. While together, King writes, they felt right together. They fitted neatly against each other's edges. The circle now is almost complete. With the construction of the dam, i.e. friendship, it should come as no surprise that Bill relates the tale of the haunted photo album. Which in turn causes King to relate the story of Eddie's visits to the train yard, which result first with attempted molestation at the hands of a hobo, then an encounter with the clown who, rather than adopting the form of a classic monster, plays upon Eddie's fear of disease by shape-shifting into a rotting leper. By the end of this chapter, the boys relate their experiences to each other, except for Richie, who doesn't remember his, and Stan, who refuses to acknowledge that it happened at all. Chapter 8, Georgie's Room and the House on Nybolt Street. In this Richie-centric episode, we see the two sides to the character, the annoying jokester, who doesn't know when to shut it off, and the loyal friend. We see Richie both take a proactive approach by suggesting they face the haunted photo album head-on, and then comforts Bill when he opens up about his guilt in the death of his brother. For the last hundred pages or so, King has been laying down the plot, establishing sequences in the past, getting our characters from point A to point B, but though plot is necessary, he never lets up on the character work, whether it be the friendly put-downs between them, the quiet inner reflections about life and their parents, or moments like this, when one friend helps another when he needs it. There's no clown, no mummy, no Rodan, Gilman, or a rotting leopard, just one friend who lost a brother that's feeling unloved by his parents and another friend who listens. Bill's situation here is as threatening, really, as any clown. The scene in George's room shows that it has not just the ability to shape its own appearance, but to shape reality as well. The fact that it can create moving pictures within the photo album and Bill's entering of the picture suggests that the threat they face is larger than if they were just confronting something that can take different forms. As Richie concludes with the section, a simple fact. It's a monster. Some kind of monster. Some kind of monster right here in Derry. And it's killing kids. King uses this chapter as a love letter for the movie experience of his youth. Through Richie, he expresses, going to the movies always made him feel good. He loved that magic world, those magic dreams. It was in the movie theater in 1957 when King's life changed. Without that real life moment, I might not be here to talk about this book. As for that moment and significance, I'm gonna be getting that in uh, next week's episode. Richie gathers what members of the gang he can to go to the movies, demonstrating that if Bill is the leader of the group, then Richie is very well the second in command. In fact, it's Richie that brings Bev into the fold, and unlike Bill or Ben, he doesn't have those kind of feelings for her. As King writes, he liked her because she was tough and had a really good sense of humor. Also, she usually had cigarettes. He liked her in short because she was a good guy. This relationship between the two is quiet but deep, and significant enough for King to revisit it in 11-22-63 in a great fanboy moment of his career when the main character of that novel meets these two members of the Loser Club in a scene that's written with such love from the writer it stands out as a wonderful gift from King to his fans as if saying, I know you love them, I know you miss them, I love and miss them too. So let's just pop in together just for a second and see how they're doing. And the scene is a beautiful moment in which it turns out that each is the other's first date. There's nothing romantic about it, but in the pages leading up to it, we see the chemistry between them. So the fact that they go on a date together, regardless of whether or not Ben is there with them, is a moment that stands out as an important life moment. And I'm glad that they were able to share it together. When they return to the Barrens, Richie has a sensation that they're being picked, chosen, drawn together. In a later episode next week, I'm going to explore the significance of this in regards to the Dark Tower. But now, let's just say that it speaks to the argument that I've made that King is a writer who believes that um, only when his characters can rely on each other can they overcome the monsters that populate his books. I'd say here, along with The Stand, is his greatest example of that concept. Bill and Richie go proactively in search of the clown, deciding on the house on Nybolt Street, which gives us the timeless tale of children entering the haunted house. It's never called a haunted house. It doesn't have ghosts rattling its chains, but make no mistake, it's a haunted house. 
Actually, like the Marston House from Salem's Lot, the Overlook from The Shining, and the Black Hotel from The Talisman, it's an evil house where reality bends to its dark will. It's one of those scenes that you get the sense it just writes itself. It's so vivid. Your heart beats just as frantically as Richie's, and no sooner do they enter the house does King write. The door at the head of the cellar stairs crashed open against the wall with a violent bang, spilling thin white daylight down the stairs. Again, although we know the boys grow up to become men who return to Dairy as adults, there's such a such menace in this scene that you can't help but think that King has tricked you somehow, because surely one of them has to die here. And thinking about the remake made me realize that while I was a teenage werewolf has no direct relevance nowadays. It certainly does indirectly. So much, in fact, that Cory Fukunaga could very easily just include this monster in his modern-day retelling of the story using Michael Jackson's thriller as a template. During the scene, we get a glimpse of the power contained within our characters as Richie uses the voices against the werewolf. Just repeating the, that sounds incredibly stupid, but for whatever reason, it works. Both the losers and the clown are on opposite ends of the magical spectrum. And here, Richie discovers that he can use his own brand of magic to wound it. It's concept versus concept. The concept of possibilities, of raw imagination, versus the concept of finality, here in the form of a teenage werewolf. Chapter 9, Cleaning Up. And part 2 winds down with a focus on Bev, before heading into another interlude. Now with this section we get our first look at Elvin March, who I will discuss more thoroughly in the character analysis section of the review next week. It's during this scene that we are given more parameters to Pennywise's abilities. Not only can he warp and bend reality, adults can't see it. Here, blood gushes from the sink, but Alvin can't see any of it, which leads us to believe, like I said, that adults can't see the world of Pennywise, but it's really not that simple. It's not just children that can see Pennywise. As evidenced by the case of Adrian Mellon, it's the vulnerable. And as for Alvin, why should he have any concept of the clown? After all... Does the hand have a concept of the head? As for the blood, of course it's Stan, logical, rational Stan, who when Bev asks how she can ever come in there again, states matter-of-factly, why don't we clean it up? With the occlusion of Stan, he's able to relate his own encounter with the clown in the form of the dead children at the standpipe. Stan then voices the central conflict in this story and why it has to be up to the children to stop the monster. When Ben suggests going to the police, Stan replies, Dead kids in the standpipe, clouds walking on the canal, balloons that blow against the wind, mummies, lepers under porches. Chief Norton will laugh his bum off, then stick us in the loony bin. Part 2 concludes with the second interlude, which reveals that Mike is hesitant to call the losers despite his deep wish to see them again, which makes the character much more noble and draws that much more sympathy from the reader. Unlike the others, he remembers his friends, he remembers their friendships, he remembers and misses them. Regardless, he holds off, knowing that he'll know when the time has come, and is certain that they will hear the voice of the turtle. We are then treated to an extended look at a specific moment in the history of Derry, the fire at the black spot, a scene so steeped in racism that it's hard to read at times. Now, in many of the podcasts leading up to this, I've addressed that racism is something that King has used to reinforce the negative qualities of a despicable character. Here, for the first time, he tackles racism head-on, providing a black character to lead us through this particular minefield. And if current events have proven anything, it's that just because the mines are buried deep and out of sight doesn't mean that they're not going to go off. In this scene with Mike, he relates a time related to him from his father who witnessed blatant sadistic, sadistic racism at the hands of his army superiors and demonstrates a measure of self-control that was in turn passed down to his son who waited patiently in a sour town for 28 years while his friends went off to become rich, famous, and successful because somebody had to stand watch. In a novel about cycles, Mike's resolute nature in the face of the atrocities of Derry is the mirror of his father's decision, despite having survived the vicious racist attack at the black spot, to return to Derry to raise a child. The way I interpret the scene between Mike's dad and Butch Bowers is that Mike is standing up to all of the racist characters that have appeared in Stephen King's works at that point, and the scene itself is fist-pumpingly triumphant. When Mr. Hanlon tells the story of the black spot, we are treated to a cameo from The Shining's Dick Holleran. It's a nice moment, and without King having to say it, Dick uses The Shining to get the boys out of the black spot alive. But he doesn't manage to get the man who was snatched up by the giant bird with balloons tied to his wings. 
The interlude ends with Mike getting a call of his own, not from one of his childhood friends or the turtle, but their enemy, who lurks in the library one night and leaves behind a balloon as a hello and a challenge. Part 3, Grown Ups. Chapter 10, The Reunion. King takes this opportunity to focus on the human touch here, namely the experience of returning home after a long time and finding it changed. Through Bill, we see that the town it once was has grown into a small city. For a novel about growing up, scenes like this are necessary. As Bill notes all the changes made to his childhood town, King makes mention of the radio announcing that an escaped mental patient has escaped, which we know upon reread is Henry Bowers. The losers, after all, weren't the only ones to get their invitations to the reunion. As for the reunion, King doesn't jump right into it. He takes his time, letting Bill explore the town. Reading the section, I get nervous, like I'm seeing old friends that I haven't seen in years. For anyone that's ever attended a high school reunion after not speaking to classmates for years, um, will understand that he captures the sensation perfectly. The strange doubling sensation as he describes it, the contradictory sensations of things having stayed exactly the same and everything having changed is just spot on, as he does on uh, 462 to 463. Bill hesitated for a moment outside the door, suddenly frightened. It was not that the unknown that scared him, not the supernatural. It was the simple knowledge that he was 15 inches taller than he had been in 1958 and minus most of his hair. He was suddenly uneasy, almost terrified, at the thought of seeing them all again, their children's faces almost worn away, almost buried under change as the old hospital had once been banks erected inside their heads where once magic picture palaces had stood. We grew up, he thought. We didn't think it would happen. Not then, not to us. But it did. And if I go in there, it will be real. We're all grown-ups now. He looked at Mike, suddenly bewildered and timid. How do they look? He heard himself asking in a faltering voice. Mike, how do they look? Come in and find out, Mike said, kindly enough, and led Bill into the small private room. Later on, on page 548, King continues this idea uh, with Richie, who muses on the parts that we play. The others saw him as the class clown, the crazy cut-up, and he had fallen neatly and easily into that role again. Ah, we all fell neatly and easily back into our old roles again, didn't you notice? But was there anything very unusual about that? He thought that you would probably see much the same thing at any 10th or 20th high school reunion. The class comedian who had discovered a vocation for priesthood in a college would, after two drinks, revert almost automatically to all the wiseacre he had been. The great English brain who wound up with a GM truck dealership would suddenly begin spouting off about John Irving or John Cheever. The guy who had played with the moon dogs on Saturday nights and who had gone on to become a mathematics professor at Cornell would suddenly find himself on stage with the band, a Fender guitar strapped over his shoulder, whooping out Gloria or Surfing Bird with gleeful drunken ferocity. What was it that Springsteen said? No retreat, baby. No surrender. But it was easier to believe in the oldies on the record player after a couple drinks or some pretty good Panama Red. But Richie believed it was the reversion that was the hallucination, not the present life. Maybe the child was the father of the man, but fathers and sons often shared very different interests and only a passing resemblance. They, but you say grown-ups, and now it sounds like nonsense. It sounds like so much bibble-babble. Why is that, Richie? Why? Because dairy is as weird as ever. Why don't we just leave it at that? Because things weren't that simple, and that's why. During the reunion, Mike addresses the fact that the losers that left all became successful. And the relationship between it and the losers, it's clear that both the creature and the group have profoundly affected the other. The fact that none of them has had any children is discussed, which I'll address in a later episode, and they agree to fight the creature again despite the odds stacked against them. Mike suggests that the group split up and meet again in the library in the evening. From a logical standpoint, it's pretty dumb, but it's explained, it's explained rather well with the rationale of intuition telling him that it's the right thing to do, as if the voice of the turtle is speaking to them. From a narrative standpoint, it's a good call. It delays the action, builds up the tone, creates more suspense, and allows King to spend more time with the characters. Ben returns to the library and is taunted by Pennywise, who provides a timetable to the rest of the book. 
it gives them the opportunity to leave before dark. After dark, they die. Until now, there's been a certainty to the events. Stan dies, that we know, and the others return to Derry. We know that the children survive. These things have been certainties. Now, however, all bets are off. While we know that they survive as children, something mysterious is hinted at, which the adults are unaware. And as for the adults themselves, there's no guarantee that any of them will return to the library alive. Now that we're halfway through the book, King can begin his endgame, again teasing the spider reveal, this time with Eddie, as when lost in a daydream of summer baseball games, discovers a string-wrapped sphere whose string trails off like a spider's web. Bev returns home, and King really hammers home the fairy tale quality of this novel with Mrs. Kirsch, the old woman persona that Pennywise adopts. Despite Bev being an adult, here she feels very much like a vulnerable child in the lair of the witch's house, unknowingly lured in to be buttered up and fattened for the oven. It's the witch from Hansel and Gretel, Bev's deepest fear because the witch had eaten the children. The moment that Bev realizes that the tea looked muddy is terrifying. Ben had spotted the clown when he was surrounded by others, so there's safety there. Eddie had spotted the clown outside, so there's a little bit of safety because he can run. Bev, however, is alone in an enclosed space with the creature. It adds a tension that wasn't there with the others. Cleverly, with Mrs. Kirsch, King actually foreshadows the reveal of the spider. Technically being a female, when Kirsch explains that her father was Bob Gray, known as Pennywise the Dancing Clown, and that he gave birth to her, and that they are one. He also foreshadows the reveal that the clown is alien with the balloon that reads it came from outer space. This, along with Richie's description of it coming from outside and Bill's mention of the same, King begins to lay the groundwork for the truth of the monster. With Richie, the reader is finally granted the scene in which he first encountered the clown who took the form of the Paul Bunyan statue. It's a scene that no doubt that was teased and teased because of King's personal experience with a similar Paul Bunyan statue. Not that anything happened, it's just that we know that King drew upon the fact that he not encountered, because encountering imbues it with uh, a menace, but there is a Paul Bunyan statue that was inspired, that inspired this Paul Bunyan statue. I'm going to cover Richie extensively later, but for now I'm going to make note that all the losers um, that have experienced the clown again, Richie demonstrates a bravery that is unbelievable. With his wise-ass comebacks, he's the only one to stand up to the clown. Bill's tour, when it comes to him, is much less foreboding. He interacts with uh, a dairy boy, and it's rather really sweet. Um, uh, there's a poignancy there, and King writes on page 570, But he rode as Bill had suspected he would, with lazy hip-shot grace. Bill felt love for the boy, and exhilaration and in a desire to be the boy, along with almost a suffocating fear. The boy rode as if there were no such things as death or getting older. The boy seemed somehow eternal in his khaki boyish shorts and scuff sneakers, his ankles sockless and quite dirty, his hair flying back behind him. I think the choice to end the chapter on a note other than doom and gloom is a nice touch. Bill's reunion with Silver is bittersweet, and suggests another hand at work. It'll be revealed that the turtle is dead, but the losers has a, have a cosmic charge that they've built up together, so it's no surprise that we see a little hopeful reminder in the form of silver. Chapter 12, Three Uninvited Guests. Eagle-eyed readers will put um, two and two together that Henry has escaped as the radio in Bill's taxi has told us. Here, we get an account of that escape while filling in some of the blanks from 1958 for instance, that the, the fact that the murders had been pinned on Henry. This section presents a valid argument to the response that there's too much fat in this novel. I mentioned this earlier, and I came down in favor of um, how long this book is. Uh, and it's not an argument that I wholly subscribe to, but with the inclusion of Audra and Tom into the dairy narrative, I, I do agree with that. Audra becomes the damsel in distress that Bill has to rescue, and Tom provides nothing to the story at all. You know, I understand that Tom becomes a wild card, but ultimately it's a wild card that doesn't contribute to the story at all. Henry, of course, is a welcome and fitting addition. 
Of course, it makes sense for him to come back. The other two, nah, not as much. Derry, the third interlude. Personally, the third interlude doesn't quite do it for me. It's well written, but it pales in comparison to Mike's beginnings of the quest in the first and the personal stakes of the second. I love the image of Pennywise in a shootout, and the idea that he's in multiple places at once and hanging out of windows is certainly creepy, but King doesn't add to the story of the characters here. Um, between this and the previous chapter, King could have cut out 26 pages. Part 4, July 1958, Chapter 13, The Apocalyptic Rock Fight. This chapter provides the meeting of Mike and the Losers, as well as the introduction to the ritual of Chud, an aspect of the story that's completely cut from the movie. It's such an insane concept that I completely understand why, as I imagine the ritual the kids take would be difficult to film at the time. In the remake, I um, I think just from what I've seen from True Detective, and I, I keep talking about um, Corey Fukunaga um, being the director of True Detective, and I understand that he didn't create the show, he directed it. Um, but what he was able to do especially at the end when they're in Carcosa and if you haven't seen it make sure you go see it there there's a there's a way to film the the cosmic that he he's able to capture and I'm really looking forward to seeing what he's able to do regardless there's an encroaching sense of finality here as everything seems to be coming to a head fate draws Mike and the losers together the magic of the losers and the clown are so potent that Eddie sees piranhas in the stream as they cross now, while on the subject, I'm just glad that King includes this scene of the kids, of children playing and just using their imagination. It's a natural display of the everyday magic that most children possess. But it's clear that something is in the air. The universe is readying itself for the moment when the losers are finally united and complete. Before the losers arrive, Mike stands his ground. And what I love about the characterization of Henry is that he keeps getting beat up and humiliated. Sure, he's a bully, but he's a bully too stupid to realize that every time he runs up against the losers, they manage to inflict a good deal of pain on him. And here, again, King teases the spider reveal, describing Henry as looking like a bloated spider. Chapter 14, the album. Here we have the sequel to Georgie's photo album, except this time everyone gets to see it. Aside from telling you it's a fun scene, there's not much for me to say. King continues to demonstrate Bill's um, leadership abilities here. Chapter 15, The Smoke Hole. The chapter begins with Richie reflecting on the power of the magic of childhood, which I'll address at length in next week's episode, and how that power is coming back. We're then treated to the smoke hole incident, which provides Pennywise's origin story, that it's been here for millions of years, and that it came from beyond the stars. I hate to keep saying this, but this is something I'm going to get into later. Again, there's a hint at, of other forces at work, and Richie thinks, how much of this are we thinking ourselves, and how much is being thought for us? It's a cool scene where the magic is fully on display. The ritual allows the turtle in just enough to show them the origin of the creature, and the Dark Tower fans might catch the fact that Mike and Richie float up most likely because they access a higher level of the tower, not unlike Ralph Roberts from Insomnia. But don't worry, I'll be getting to the Dark Tower connections uh, and the connections to, to this book in due time. Despite the fact that the vision reveals that it came from above, King makes sure to address that it doesn't necessarily come from space. On page 723, he writes, A spaceship, oh my god, it's a spaceship, but he believed and would tell the others later as best he could that it was not a spaceship although it might have come through space to get here. Whatever came down on that day had come from a place much further away than another star or another galaxy. And if spaceship was the first word to come into his mind, perhaps that was only because his mind had no other way of grasping what his eyes were seeing. Chapter 16, Eddie's Bad Break. In this Eddie-centric episode, we are given the time he learns about the placebo, and with it, though he rejects it at first, realizes the power of his mind and imagination. The attack at the hands of the bullies is vicious, and I get the sense, with Hockstetter's loogie running down his face, the sense of Eddie having been violated. However, we also see his inner strength depicted thus far as the weakest physically, so it's, it's awesome to see how he laughs at them, even when they break his arm, and refuses to give in to the fear. It's a watershed moment for Eddie, 
who then stands up to his mother, both forcefully and lovingly, showing the deep reservoirs of compassion within the character that I had referenced earlier. It'd be very easier for his character to turn to hate, but he doesn't. It doesn't even cross his mind. What he does, however, is in some ways worse than hate, resorting to the emotional blackmail that she has specialized in, trapping her in an emotional hell that she has had a hand in creating. They soon might face the uh, apotheosis of monsters soon enough, but Eddie standing up to his mother really might be the bravest thing in this book. The scene in the hospital with the reunion of the children as the thunder piles on and on over the town. It's so ominous. It's so wonderful. Here, King sells the gravity of their situation. Chapter 17. Another one of the missing. The death of Patrick Hochstetter. This chapter is an extended look at the squalid life of Patrick Hochstetter, whose death by leeches is probably the most gruesome scene in the novel. All in all, it's a rather useless scene that could have been cut Hockstetter is barely a character, and you can tell that King really wanted to tell the tarot, tell, to t sorry guys, just so you know, um, I have a little bit of a cold, I took some NyQuil last night, I haven't fully woken up, um, I'm in a little bit of a daze, uh, but anyway, uh, Hockstetter was barely a character, and you can tell that King wanted to tell the tale of a legit sociopath, one who rarely encountered the losers at all, whose presence didn't impact the story, it's 33 pages, that I think could have been cut from the bulk of this novel. Chapter 18, The Bullseye. Here, after forging the silver slugs, the losers, in full this time, return to the house on Nybolt Street, which is an evil version of the Doctor's Tardis, bigger on the inside. The house is described as a station where it can find its way into the other world. Dark Tower fans will know that this makes it a thinny. The dancing elf wallpaper reminds us of the fairy tale quality to the story. Their confrontation with the werewolf reveals snippets of its malleability and hints of its true form. Later, Ben has a page and a half introspection on the similar malleability of power. It had some real shape. He had nearly seen it. To see the shape was to see the secret. But was that also true of power? Perhaps it was. For wasn't it true that power, like it, was a shape changer? It was a baby crying in the middle of the night. It was an atomic bomb. It was a silver slug. It was the way Beverly looked at Bill and the way Bill looked back. What was power anyway? Derry, the fourth interlude. Here we get the scene of Claude Heroux, the murderous lumberjack who slaughtered a number of men in a bar while the rest of the patrons just went about their business. And now that Mike understands that the creature had waited for the magic of childhood to lose its shine within them, Mike decides to call them, knowing he's most likely calling them to their doom. Part 5, The Ritual of Chud, Chapter 19, and The Watches of the Night. King begins the section entitled The Ritual of Chud with the Ritual Itself for the Adults. Their magic is sealed, their memories return, and they are bound by fate to see this through until the end. We then experience the horror of Alvin Marsh, his already impressionable mind brainwashed by it, and all of the warped sexual repressive abuse comes to the forefront with a harrowing, disturbing scene. It's also in this scene where King again foreshadows the spider reveal, as a character who sees the possessed Alvin Marsh has nightmares of the father transforming into a spider. This scene's horrific. It's one thing to read a book where children die, it's another thing to read a book where the children die at the hands of their parents which is almost what happens here. We see that the powers of it are not limited to shape-shifting. It really is a dark god who demands sacrifice in this town, who calls upon its disciples to do its work for it. Bev narrowly escapes one disciple, her father, before running straight into another, Henry, who has gone insane at this point, believing that the moon is talking to him. Here, King reveals the past and the present have blended together completely. One scene in 1958 ends with the threat of the now insane Henry, and the next scene, 1985, begins with the threat of the recently escaped Henry lurking in the shadows of the library. The darkened, echoing library is full of shadows and the unknown. We know at this point, with less than 200 pages to go, that anything can happen. King has made Mike state that he wasn't sure they would all live through the night. And Mike's primary role was to stand watch and call in the troops when the time came. 
while he stood watch, and he called in the troops. These thoughts should fill the reader, like air in a balloon, which could easily pop with a dreadful knowledge that the scene that we're reading will most likely end with the death of Mike. The showdown between Mike and Henry is tense, and both of the characters' traits are fully on display, one insane, the other resolute but compassionate. King continues to flip back and forth through the two arrows, like a baton being passed from one runner to the next. We get a sequence which Bill cheats on his wife. It's a scene that I can't stand because it's beyond unnecessary, and it makes Bill look awful. It makes Bev look awful. It, it, I, I get it that it gives Bill guilt heading into the final act, but I just it's one that I wish wasn't there. Thankfully, the bad taste is soon washed out of my mouth with one of my favorite parts of the book, which is so joyfully fanboyish. It's that, it's when Christine, yeah, that Christine, shows up to give Henry a ride. It's a fun cameo, an Easter egg for constant readers. And if you're to take it seriously, brings about goofy ramifications of the Stephen King villains in league with each other, like the Universal Monsters and the Monster Squad. I mean, if Pennywise had more time, would Christine drive Henry up to Ludlow, Maine and pop the trunk, revealing the corpse of a St. Bernard with instructions to bury Cujo in Pet Cemetery so that Henry might have more reinforcements? Stuff like that I love, you know? And I'm sure that there's probably fan fiction out there where, where stuff like this happens. Tension builds in both the past and the present with Eddie about to die and the growing storm in 58. Thankfully, Eddie survives his encounter with Henry in the present, while Bill in the past realizes that it has taken control of the entire town and that none of them are safe anywhere. In 1958, the losers descend into darkness for what they think is their final confrontation with it. Chapter 20, The Circle Closes. Momentum comes to a crashing halt with the appearance of Tom Rogan. Tom has a dream that he's Henry in the sewers. Audra is taken, and the adults head to the sewers. And it's, again, Tom is unnecessary. Uh, I think the movie actually did a good job at getting rid of Tom and just having Pennywise take Audra. Chapter 21, Under the City. Here we get the first chapter to take perspective of it, which relays the origins of the universe and the relationship with the turtle. It mentions the macroverse outside this universe, and concern, and it's concern that's being opposed by something that it doesn't understand. In the present, it reveals that Audra's mind has been swallowed, as King writes, Now the mind of the writer's wife was with it, in it, beyond the end of the macroverse, in the darkness beyond the turtle, in the outlands beyond all lands, she was in its eye, she was in its mind, she was in the deadlights. And even here without saying it, King still teases the spider reveal, with it coming down from its place and preparing Audra for later feeding. The reader is told that Audra is crisscross in silk and hanging. In the past, the eye begins to drag away the losers, and Eddie steps up like a warrior and sprays the eye with imaginary battery acid from his aspirator and motivates the others to fight it. They beat it, and it returns as a bird, soon beaten by Stan. Now they have entered a cave so large it's as big as a cathedral whose walls throw off a light of their own. They've stepped out of reality and fully into a fairy tale. The giant wall they see is broken by a single tiny door at whose feet lies the bones of children. They've reached the home of the monster. As the children enter, it cuts the presence where the town elders realize that something is about to happen. Above, in the present, chaos erupts as Armageddon comes to Derry. The town starts to flood from the rains from above, while destruction comes from the explosions from below. It sends someone to kill Mike, but the losers send some of their power to help him. The adults then enter through the clown's door, and the final mystery is revealed in a one-two punch. We witness their horrified reactions to the realization of it exactly as King shows us, not tells us, but shows us what they remember. He writes, It raced down the gossamer curtains of its webbing, a nightmare spider from beyond time and space, a spider from beyond the fevered imaginations of whatever inmates may live in the deepest depths of hell. For a reason I personally don't understand, the final reveal of its form to be a spider is one that many people turn their noses at. I can't for the life of me understand why. Is it because of how clumsily it's handled in the movie? That I get. But here, 
A nightmare space spider living in a world of dead lights behind a three-foot door in a giant cavern below the city? That's right up my alley. Furthermore, it isn't really a spider, as King quickly points out. No, Bill thought coldly, not a spider either, not really. But this shape isn't one it picked out of our minds. It's just the closest our minds can come to whatever it really is. King goes on to describe that it was perhaps 15 feet high and as black as a moonless night. Each of its legs was as thick as a muscle builder's thigh. Its eyes were bright malevolent rubies, bulging from sockets filled with some dripping chromium-colored fluid. Its jagged mandibles opened and closed, opened and closed, dripping ribbons of foam. Frozen in an ecstasy of horror, tottering on the brink of utter lunacy, Ben observed with an eye of the storm calm that this foam was alive. It struck the stinking stone-flagged floor and then began to writhe away into the cracks like protozoa. He goes on to write, but it's almost something else. There's some final shape, one that I can almost see, the way that you might see the shape of a man moving behind a movie screen while the show is on. Some other shape, but I don't want to see it. Please, God, don't let me see it. So there you are. It's not really a spider. It's just, it's something beyond what our minds can comprehend. And the reveal is a love letter here to H.P. Lovecraft, whose elder ones resemble the spirit of the spider. In his works, Lovecraft wrote of people being driven to madness by things that existed beyond time and space. We learn that it is pregnant, so the loser's mission isn't just to enact revenge on the creature and stop the cycle for good, but to prevent the spread of misery across the world. If it is representative of a spider, then think of how many spiders burst forth from an egg sack. Think of how powerful one of these things is, what it's done to just one town. If the spawn survived, they'd wrap the planet in webs of misery and despair. Then this is where the novel gets weird. Bill enters the void of its mind and is hurled across the cosmos where he meets the turtle, who isn't some wise god, but an apologetic Alzheimer's patient who admits to only creating the universe because he had a bellyache. Bill gets the sense that there existed something even more eternal than the turtle and the spider, some other whose power dwarfed even theirs. I've read this book six or seven times now, like I've said, and I still have to stop and make sense of what I'm reading. Bill simultaneously rushes away from and towards to the spider, away from its physical body and dairy, and towards its true self in the macroverse. And despite the heavy cosmic nature to this section, he grounds it in reality by writing, to pass beyond communication was to pass beyond salvation. He understood that much from the way his parents had behaved towards him after George had died. It was the only lesson the refrigerator coldness had to teach him. Even here, King brings it back to the heart of the story, of this one boy's grief and loss. In this moment, he pours all of his belief into an attack against the spider and wins the ritual of Chud. As an adult, Bill's about to be flung into the deadlights which exists behind a giant cosmic cage, but is saved by Richie, who enters the Ritual of Chud and pretty much saves the day. I'll discuss Richie's importance in a later episode, but for now, I'll say that despite having read this half a dozen times, I did not remember Richie being the hero of the story. But even his scene-stealing moment is stolen from him by Eddie, the weakest of the bunch physically, who displays the greatest amount of strength and bravery. After vanquishing their childhood bully, he rams his fist down the spider's gullet and sprays it full of acid. Unfortunately, his kind of bravery will cost him his life, and King ends the scene with such a poignant goodbye to Eddie. When we get to a scene... That I... We get a scene... Uh, I, mean, I, I can't even like, talk around it right now. Uh, that, that I, I, just, I can't believe it. I can't believe that it made it to print. Uh, if you've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it, it, it is... I, uh, I'll discuss my final thoughts on this next week when I talk about Bev. Anyway, uh, Richie and Bill, best friends, ultimately defeat the spider who promises them long life and power. Makes you wonder if it had granted such things to others before. After its defeat, they emerge from the ruined dairy. In a scene that I remember almost bringing me to tears when I first read it, Bev catches a glimpse of their reflection in the window, a reflection that included Stan and Eddie. King concludes his novel with Bill, alternating between past and present. The last magic of childhood is enough to resurrect Audra and give him the rest of their lives together. And King ends the novel fully with probably his greatest ending that I've ever read of his, one that serves the characters, the plot, 
and the themes. He writes, He thinks that it's good to be a child, but it's also good to be a grown-up and be able to consider the mystery of childhood, its beliefs and desires. I'll write about all of this one day, he thinks, and knows that it's just a dawn thought, an after-dreaming thought. But it's nice to think so for a while in the morning's clean silence, to think that childhood has its own sweet secrets and confirms mortality, and that mortality defines all courage and love. To think that what has looked forward must also look back, and that each life makes its own imitation of immortality, a wheel. Or so Bill Dunbro sometimes thinks on those early mornings after dreaming, when he almost remembers his childhood, and the friends with whom he shared it. It's just the ending ending of the, the, the story, but leading up to it, just flashing back and forth between present-day Bill and 1958 Bill looking out over the water and <clears throat> the sun going down and him being ready to move on and then cutting to him as an adult, saving Audra and thinking that and just we being swept up in everything that had occurred it 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 really does feel like an ending it it it's it's a right ending it's a strong ending it's an emotionally thematically um rich ending it works for me on on multiple levels so that's all that i have for this week everybody um you know the last Last week, I, I introduced it. I started uh, providing the running commentary. This week, I concluded the running commentary. Make sure you tune in next week as I give my final thoughts on it, um, as I discuss the themes and the characters in more depth, and I share the Stephen Kingisms, which, if you haven't listened to any of the podcast yet, Stephen Kingisms are the tricks and traits and tropes and patterns that you see from across one Stephen King story to the next. And there's quite a few, so that's going to... Uh, it's going to take some time to get through, so make sure you come back next week for that. And the following week, I will dive into the, uh, the, the, the 1990 ABC TV miniseries. So for fans of the, the miniseries, make sure you stick around for that. So we're still, uh, I might be over with the running commentary of the book, but we're, we're still, still in dairy. So we, we got a couple more weeks to, to stick around, kick around, and, and revisit some, some old haunts. All right, everyone, uh, if you haven't done so already, uh, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. You can uh, follow me on Pinterest, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, and if you haven't done so already, uh, definitely feel free to go over to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and write a review as the more reviews and subscriptions that I get, the higher up on the, the library the the, uh, the podcast gets. So everyone, uh, you know, do these things, not do these things, just come around to listen you know, whatever you feel most comfortable doing. And I will see you here, same King time, same King channel, Stephen King.